The title from the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning is Justified by God. I had no idea that in the context of the responsive reading that one of my least favorite definitions of justification would be a part of it. Just as if I'd never sinned. And so, I've never liked that definition because it's too incomplete. And we already live in a world where we are happy with something that sounds neat and cute and we're willing to avoid digging deeply to think about all the consequences. But in just that thought running through my mind, and, and you can do with this as you will, I'm just going to report. <laughs> I had a thought I'd never had before. That statement is not only incomplete, it's wrong. It's not true. That being justified, God treats us as if we have never sinned. Well, he certainly wouldn't be interceding for us if we'd never sinned. The Holy Spirit wouldn't be interceding for us. There's a lot of the Bible that wouldn't be in there. Because God wouldn't have any record of it. There's a verse that says he puts our sins as far as the east is from the west. What's the rest of it? And remembers them against us no more. God knows. And when the Holy Spirit breathed out the word of God. He breathed out a whole lot of information about justification, about the price and the cost of justification. And you never are left with the concept or thinking, well, it's kind of like God walking in the garden with Adam and Eve. They never sinned, just nothing but fellowship and no remembrance of anything other than that. And I think it's also significant in the book of Revelation that Jesus is primarily and often remembered as the Lamb. All of that's extra. Just forget about it for now. And uh, let's dig into the scriptures here. And, and uh, regardless of what do you think about that uh, thought that came, let's focus on what we do specifically find here in the scripture. Um, justified by God now I want us to pretend for a moment you said that shouldn't be hard I spent a lot of my life pretending <laughs> I'm glad this is not true it's just pretending okay but Ken Smith is accused charged and tried in court before a jury and judge for the alleged crime of robbing a local unnamed tow truck company 
of one million dollars. You say, well, you had me going, but I know you didn't have a million dollars to steal, so. Thankfully, after all the evidence was in place and the arguments were made and the dust settled, the jury was unanimous. Ken Smith is not guilty. He's innocent on all accounts. And so the judge slammed down his gavel and cried, I hereby declare Mr. Smith to be acquitted of all charges. You're free to go. So in this ruse that we've concocted, Ken was falsely accused, found innocent, and thus acquitted. And that's how things work in the court system. Uh, from a law book, from a law website, here is a quote. A verdict of not guilty constitutes an acquittal. In other words, to find a defendant not guilty is to acquit. At trial, an acquittal occurs when the jury or the judge, if it's simply a judge trial, determines that the prosecution has not proved the defendant to be guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Now it's obvious that the words acquit, acquitted, acquittal, while they fit the jury room, the courthouse, they don't fit the gospel. And there are many theologians and pastors and some Bible translations that will on occasions in trying to communicate about the gospel talk about us being acquitted. But why is this not the word we need? Because at the judgment bar of God, no one is ever falsely or mistakenly accused. No one. No one is found innocent of our charges. No one. And no one, therefore, at the judgment seat of God, at no time does God say, I did not find you guilty. You're free to go. You were falsely accused. I was mistaken. You say, well, I think what they're trying to say is after the blood of Jesus Christ is applied, then God can treat us just as if we've never sinned. I know that's what's trying to be con communicated, but it is not good communication because it just leaves out too much. And so far as the word acquittal, it just doesn't fit. The whole human race is guilty and deserves the just sentence of God. For all have sinned, verse 23, and come short of the glory of God. All. In Romans 3, 26, to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believes in Jesus. This is the greatest, most astounding 
reality in all of the world. How can God, who is holy and just and righteous and cannot have sin in his sight, how can God justify a sinner without compromising his holiness? We sinners have two problems, and we have no solutions. The penalty of sin must be paid in full. We have nothing with which to pay. That's why it's so utterly futile to say, well, I, 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 I can't forgive myself. Well, of course you can't. You don't have anything to forgive with. The pastor was very wise in listening to a dear lady who was weeping about all of her troubles, and she said, I just can't forgive myself. And he said, I want you to pray one more prayer. I want you to pray and ask God to forgive you for not valuing what Jesus did on the cross. That's where forgiveness is found and the only place. God's nature and God's law requires satisfaction for all disobedience, and we can't pay. God's perfect obedience is required. And we're rebels. This is why when we think about redemption, it's not only the fact that Jesus paid our sin debt on the cross, but he had to be qualified to be the one who could do it. And that was meant that he had to have a sinless life. He was tempted and tested in all points as we. Uh, he never once disobeyed. So we have a debt we cannot pay. We have a life we cannot live. But wonder of wonders, God the Father justifies sinners. There's a message here for both the lost person and the Christian. In this passage, what we need to understand, Christian, is that God has declared you to be righteous before God. Not just you never sinned, you, a sinner, Simultaneous saint and sinner declared righteous before God. It was like, how can that be? Because it's on the basis of Christ's perfect obedience and on his death on the cross. And based on that work, we are clothed in his righteousness. You're not righteous in yourself. You're declared righteous. The perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ is credited to you. That's why the scripture says we are accepted in the beloved. At the heart of the gospel is what is known as double imputation. If something is imputed to you, it's charged to you. My sin is imputed charged to Jesus. He became sin for us. He took upon himself our sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Philippians 3.9 
says. And to be found speaking about uh, what it means in part here to be a Christian and to be found in him not having mine own righteousness which is of the law but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness which is of God by faith. Your sin went to Jesus his righteousness is given to you. That's what we're celebrating at the Lord's table today. The wonder, the indescribable, the astounding wonder. We live in a world where deals are made all the time. I don't want to bring this down to the level of a deal, but a transaction. There's nothing like it. Never, ever will be nothing like it. My sin, imputed, charged. What, what are you going to do with your sin? All have sinned. You have nothing to pay your sin debt with. And wonder of wonders, we who deserve, deserve nothing but justice, God says to the sinner, Jesus went to the cross to pay the sin debt of sinners that the sinner's sin might be upon Jesus and the righteousness of Jesus might be upon the undeserving sinner. Where is your sin? What is your righteousness? Have you, in the profound simplicity of the publican, come to a point in your life, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said he went home justified. He went home with his sin placed upon Jesus and the righteousness of Jesus on him. Sinner, your only hope is for you to flee to Christ, for you to have your sin laid on Jesus and his righteousness given to you. Now we have to make some distinctions further because on the primary level what we are talking about is the once and for all time act of God where you are seen before God Almighty Christian as perfectly righteous. You say I might be a lot of things, but I'm not perfectly righteous. Before God, you are. And it's very important that we confess this and that we act accordingly. And I hope you'll see it as we go along. You are fully and perfectly righteous before God, not based on anything you have done or will ever do, but uh, again on the merits of Christ. And what this means is, don't, don't a lot of us go up and down. We have a good day or think, we think it's good and 
we might be puffed up. We're doing okay and look at somebody who's not and we say, well, what's their problem? On the other hand, we have a bad day and we say, oh, God, uh, I'm sure you don't love me today. You are never more or less righteous than the first moment you were justified. Justification doesn't waver because the effectiveness of what Jesus did at Calvary doesn't waver. What he accomplished there doesn't waver. The sin debt he paid is paid. His perfect righteousness is done. We're never more or less justified based on how we've lived. God always accepts me on the merits of his son. Therefore, it's on that basis, Hebrews 4.16, that we come boldly before the throne of grace to find help in time of need. When do you need him most, Christian? When you've fallen flat on your face and you've failed him and, and you have guilt and, and, and you know you're wrong and, and you're even by the grace of God you're repentant and you're... But instead of resting in God's forgiveness, you're begging for God's forgiveness and you're, he sure won't forgive me this time. In fact, I can't open my Bible. I can't pray. Uh, God doesn't like me today. I'll have to just skip church and skip the Bible and all the rest because I fail the Lord and, and I'd be a hypocrite if I prayed. You're trying to relate to God based on your performance. And hallelujah, that's not Christianity. We relate to God based on his performance. Nothing less, nothing more. That's good news. I don't have to crawl my way back to God. How far are you going to crawl? And there are people, there are stories, I don't, hadn't thought about this, but there, I think there's accounts of Martin Luther before he was redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Did, went through all sorts of gyrations trying to earn his way to God. No, come boldly to the throne of grace to find help in time of need, based on the merits, the doing, the dying, the rising of Jesus. And when I've had a good day, and by the grace of God, you're welcome with Jesus, you'll have some of those. And when we're doing pretty well, we're having our devotions, we're praying, we're ministering, we've shared the gospel with someone, and then we look out of the corner of our eye and we see somebody who's not walking with God. And one of the easiest things in the world is to get on the judgment seat. They're probably not even saved. And if they'd have been looking at me yesterday, they might have said, oh, he's probably not saved. Why? 
when I've had a grand day and I'm tempted to be pleased with myself, I discover, I remember, that God is only impressed with his son's perfect righteousness. All of my righteousnesses are as filthy rags. So humbled, I come back to the throne of grace and thank him for his grace. And I come back to the throne of grace boldly, crying out, Oh Lord God, help him. In Acts chapter 4, the apostles had been beaten up by the anti-Christians. As we've shared many times before, it's almost like they opened up the scroll to, to uh, uh, Psalm 2 and said, Now Lord, look at this. They're doing just exactly what you said. Uh, the heathen are raging. But they didn't follow that up by saying, Get them, Lord! They followed it up by saying, God, give us boldness to preach the gospel. Who knows? Maybe that was a part of the foundation out of which Saul of Tarsus would become the Apostle Paul. Because after all, a fellow by the name of Stephen received incredible boldness to preach the gospel. And Saul of Tarsus was watching. He was a mean man. He was violent. He, but he was smart, intelligent. People say, smarter than Socrates, smarter than whoever, smartest man ever lived. I don't know, but he was smart. Pharisee of the Pharisees. And he believed in what he believed. But he had no peace. And he's sitting there holding that robe Listening to Stephen, who in short order summarizes the essence of the Old Testament and calls for these people to repent, and the stones begin to come, beating upon him. I don't know if he knelt down or if he was just knocked down, but he wasn't knocked out. He prayed, God. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Oh, what a transformation. Oh, how many less wars there would be in churches and in homes if when those around us fail and do bad things, we had the spirit of Jesus. We had the spirit of, of, of Stephen. Forgive them, Lord. They don't know what they're doing. They're blind. When you are deeply impressed that you once were blind, probably worse than they, and you have found grace in the eyes of the Lord and you've repented and you're in Christ, there's a gratitude there that's going to shine through. So, in this concept, in, in this area of righteousness that we're talking in justification, we're talking about the perfect righteousness of the Son 
and it never changes in the heavenly court of God Christ has taken upon himself and removed the guilt of the believing sinner past, past, present, and future and so again the father sees us in the son clothed in the son's perfect righteousness Isaiah 61.10 says I will greatly rejoice in the Lord my soul shall be joyful in my God for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation he has covered me with the robe of his righteousness Christian there is never a day that that ain't true it never wavers so judicially before God we are listen this is not heresy judicially before God we are just as righteous and perfect as Jesus Christ is but it's not our righteousness it's an alien righteousness God's own righteousness and he's clothed us with it. And so we can have boldness to come before the throne of God. And we assuredly must have humility. So we are declared righteous. We are clothed in the righteousness of God. We are accepted in the beloved. We have been credited with God's own righteousness. And since it is God who has justified me, there is no charge or no condemnation that can stand against me. Romans 8.33. Now, there is the practical living out of righteousness where we don't have perfection. We fail. We sin. We manifest unrighteous deeds, actions, attitudes. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We're in a war zone. But we're well equipped. We can come boldly to the throne of grace. And we can come into the presence of Almighty God. In the name of his son. Because we're clothed in his righteousness. Now in this passage there are several big words. And we ought to like big words. If they're Bible words. If they're important words. Uh, justification that we've been just looking at. And another practical application of this is that. A lot of people are living their lives in the bondage of what you could call the, a performance trap. Trying to be good enough to be acceptable. Now, if, if, um, if I have a plant and I'm working on, uh, I'm making parts for a motor car, General Motors, Ford, whatever. 
and they're precise things that need to be just like they ought to be. And I come to you and I see that you're not doing things like they ought to be. You're, you're, you're sloppy with your work and you're, the products coming from your line is not what it ought to be. And, and I start to try to help you to make progress and you say, hey, none of us are perfect. You may have a long life as my employee. I mean, a short life, if you're not teachable. Because there, and I want, if I'm going to have surgery, I want him to be precise. If I have to have a leg taken off, I want the right one that's supposed to be taken off. Whatever. We understand all that. And so we, on a level, have acceptance based on performance. We live in a world that people get, get prizes for their performance. In the sports world, those who perform best, top of the heap. If you're trying to live your Christian life based on your performance, you're in deep weeds. Now, because you're in Christ, you're justified, you're redeemed, you're fully forgiven, you are fully accepted in Christ, you are fully clothed in the perfect righteousness of Christ, therefore, you're free. You're not looking for performance from you in order to feel good about yourself. You're resting in Christ. Also, you don't hold others in bondage. One of the things that happens in parenting. We get embarrassed if children don't perform We'll read them in the riot act or worse. It's a process. But the attitude with which we model the Christian life and exhort them in powers of righteousness, uh, do I have them on a... Well, it's pretty obvious to the, to the child that mom and daddy don't love me now because of what I did. Some parents will even say... You do this one more time and I'm not going to love you anymore. You don't have to say it. You can act that way. On a lot of different fronts. A performance trap. Husbands and wives. Relating to each other based on performance. Rather than relating upon each, to each other as forgiven sinners. Who are always dependent upon Grace. The big word of reconciliation. There are a lot of people who are, could be called approval addicts. They, they fear rejection. And they'll do almost anything for approval. Kids are this way. Teenagers especially. Uh, because of reconciliation, the believer is now a full member of the body of Christ, 
I once was hostile, alienated from God, but now I'm forgiven and reconciled. I'm in Christ and I'm in the family of God and I will always be accepted and always be loved by Jesus Christ, my Savior, my Lord, my friend, my advocate, having God's approval, resting in Christ. I'm free. Now, I want to be Christ-like around you, but I have no need to impress you. If somewhere in this great land of America this morning there was a pastor standing before a church for what used to be called a trial sermon, they're considering him to be possibly be the next pastor. And a lot weighs on how that sermon goes across. I've been there. I understand this. It's ancient history. I still remember it. So I'm trying to get people to be impressed with me. Because I want something. Oh, but it's a good thing that I want. It's a horrible bondage to be looking for a way to be popular, to be accepted. Listen. Listen to yourself. Talk, speak the gospel to yourself. Are you in Christ? You're a child of the king. You're an ambassador for Christ. You're a laborer together with God. I'm happy to be friendly with you, but I'm not looking to you for significance. I have significance. Not based on my job, not based on what I drive, not based on where I live, but based on my sins being forgiven and based on the high calling of being a child of God. And that wonderful word, propitiation, there are a lot of people playing games, trying to escape or explain away their failures. And one of the ways you do that is point to somebody else's failure. And maybe they won't look at yours. And related to that many times, I don't feel worthy to be forgiven. You know, that sounds humble, doesn't it? Well, I don't know what you might be trying to accomplish by saying I'm not worthy to be forgiven. Who is? Forgiveness is not about worthiness from us. The propitiation of our sin is a result of what Jesus did in causing the wrath of holy God to be satisfied. With the wrath of God totally satisfied, I'm loved, I'm adopted, I'm in the family. And, of course, the ultimate foundation of all of this, and another word that's in this section is, of course, the word redemption. Redeemed. So, for those who have fled to Christ by his amazing grace, you're justified. You're fully forgiven. You're made pleasing to God. You're, you're resting in the doing, the dying, the rising of Christ. You're reconciled. You're accepted by God. Your, your sins are propitiated. The holy wrath of God is 
satisfied and you're loved by God because of the foundation of being regenerated, being born again, being a new creation. In all of this, in these verses, these are wonderful verses by which to preach the gospel to yourself. And one of the most needful things, we, we get off track. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves. We need to think in gospel terms as we relate to others. But for the grace of God, there I go. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Lord, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Lord, give me boldness that I can be your servant in this situation. I don't know that any of the Christians would have ever dreamed that Saul of Tarsus would become a Christian. And when he became a Christian by the grace of God, people doubted. We probably would have been among them. Uh, don't you know who that guy is? Don't make premature judgments about people in your world. Right now, they may be as dark as dark can be. But, oh, Lord God, I was once that way. Lord, you take control. They're your business. Give me boldness. Because I'm here to preach the gospel. Justification is a huge word. It's a huge concept. It's foundational. It's far more, far more than just as if I'd never sinned. And again, I now question the theology of that statement. Because redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, I'm still a sinner. I still need the redemptive work of Christ. And the Lord God Almighty, my Lord and Savior, is very generous, very loving with his children. He's not going to cast you aside. There in Romans 8, this whole list of things trying to separate you from the love of God. Nothing can. Hymn number 544 is entitled, Redeemed, How I Love to Proclaim It. Let's sing that as we prepare our hearts for coming to the Lord's table. 544.